in uh, late March, 1807, the British slave trade came to an end. This was largely due to the work of one of the key figures in this battle against the evils of the British slave trade, an evangelical Christian whose name was William Wilberforce. You may have heard of him. He was a short guy, about five foot three. Uh, Wilberforce continually suffered from poor health, but by all accounts, he was eloquent in his speech. He was witty. This was a time back in the late 1700s when what are known today as boys were men. This short, weak, sickly young man became a member of parliament at the age of 21. At some point after this, probably in the mid-1780s, while still in his 20s, he committed his life to Christ. He soon became deeply um, convicted by his own patterns of arrogance and self-centeredness, and he began to consider leaving his position there in the British Parliament, which he felt only fed his ego. It was his pastor, whose name was John Newton, the former captain of a slave ship, author of the hymn, Amazing Grace. Newton persuaded Wilberforce not to give up on his parliament post. Instead, he convinced him to begin to use his position for the glory of God and the good of the people. And so in early 1787, a colleague of his in parliament, a fellow abolitionist named Thomas Clarkson, gave him a copy of a work titled simply, Essay on Slavery. Now remember, this was about 75 years before the American Civil War was fought. These two men, Wilberforce and Clarkson, with the encouragement of Pastor Newton, they recognized the deep evil of stealing human beings for profit, and they began to work together to the abolition of the British slave trade. But the first time the bill to ban the slave trade was introduced in Parliament, Nearly twice as many members of parliament voted against the legislation as voted for it. One historian wrote this. He said a bill to end slave trade was actually passed by the House of Commons in 1792, but with the provision that any ban must be gradual, which practically taken meant never. And so the slave trade continued. At one point, after describing in detail suffering of the slaves, William Wilberforce famously declared to those listening to his speech, you can choose to look the other way, but you can never again say that you did not know. Well, finally, on March 25th, 1807, the abolition of the Slave Trade Act ended the slave trade in the British colonies and around, really around the world in British colonies. The House of Commons rose to its feet and cheered wildly when the results of the vote were read. The world had changed. Just in the last 20 or so years, the world had changed. This act ended the slave trade, but it it didn't end slavery itself. That didn't happen until 1833 in the British Empire. Again, 30 years before the United States Civil War. In fact, on July 26, 1833, Wilberforce received the news that sufficient votes had been gathered, had been secured to abolish not just the slave trade, uh, but, but slavery in itself in the British Empire. 
Three days later, after he heard the news of the success of his life's work, he died. Yet slavery continued, particularly in the United States. It wasn't until President Abraham Lincoln delivered the Emancipation Proclamation on uh, January 1st, 1863, 30 years after Wilberforce's death, that slavery was officially outlawed. A hundred years later, August 28th, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his probably the most famous speech he ever gave. And he said these words. I just want to read a little part of this. This will be the day when all God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, My country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. Then he said, if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. You probably remember the speech. He concludes it by saying this, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants, Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty we are free at last. Freedom is important. Freedom is especially important to us as Americans. Many have given their lives for our freedom. One of the most famous phrases that Jesus ever uttered was the statement, and the truth shall set you free. These days, in our society, people don't actually have a problem with the idea of needing to be set free. Maybe it's because when we think of freedom, the first thing that we think of is King's speech or our own history of slavery and the wars that were fought over it. Maybe it's because of our, of our national anthem, right? Maybe it's because of the flippant phrase that we use so often, well, it's a free country. Maybe it's because so many people in our community, even as we read the news, even in our local zip codes, are caught in the grip of one vice or another whether it's drugs, opioids, heroin, fentanyl, alcoholism. Maybe it's because they're caught in mental illness or addiction, even to cigarettes. I don't know any smoker that doesn't wish they were free from cigarettes, from nicotine. Maybe it's because we have an epidemic of credit card debt, that we long to be free. The borrower is a slave to the lender. But whatever it is, people all around us long to be free. I grew up in New Hampshire. The state motto in New Hampshire is live free or die. says a lot about New Hampshire people. There was a time when those of us who are are from there actually believed that. I think it's a pretty common understanding, at least in our nation, in our society, that all men long for freedom. Yet so often we have a a tiny, a, a finite view of freedom. 
ending the slave trade and ultimately freeing the slaves was good, right, just, and a noble thing to do. It had to be done. It was an evil that had to be eliminated. But what happens to those who die without Christ? What happens to free men who die without Christ? What happens to slaves who die without Christ? So often we have a a, a tiny, finite view of freedom. The Jews in John's gospel here are guilty of this. So turn to John chapter 8. I want to read this morning, um, John chapter 8, beginning in verse... 12, I think it's funny that I said turn to John chapter 8 and I didn't hear a bunch of Bibles flipping. It's because you knew we were going to be there. We're in the next verse. But John chapter 8, I'm going to read verse 12 through 36, um, just so that we can be reminded of the setting. But, but after we will pray one more time briefly, and then we're going to be looking at verses 33 to 36. So this is John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 
The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's just pray again real quick. Lord, speak to us through your word this morning. Give us ears to hear. Help us to understand that we may know the freedom that comes only through Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this debate here, this back and forth between Jesus and the, and the Jewish leadership has actually been going on for several chapters. Now, most likely, they've had a few breaks in their discussion. Sort of, you can tell as we read through this, some of the breaks maybe come in when John speaks as a narrator. Um, maybe a few days between some of the scenes here in these last few chapters. But here they are in the temple. And verse 30 looks like, when we read this, this it looks like Jesus' mic drop moment. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. At that point, it seems as though he should have said, all right, that's it for me. Take care, everybody. It seems like he should have left on a high note right there. But he didn't. He actually turned up the heat a little bit. So in the midst of this lengthy and and even heated debate with the Jewish leadership over Jesus' claims to be the Messiah, some people who were there and listening, they expressed belief in what he was saying, verse 30. And so he turned to them and specifically said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But this idea that they needed freedom, that provoked another another objection by the Jews. The thing that they get upset about is is what he tells them and when he says that they need freedom. That's what they get upset about. Look, Look at this carefully. They're not objecting to his statement, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. They're not objecting to that. They don't say anything about that there in verse 33. People all over modern Christianity object to that statement today. We don't like the statement, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Because the flip side to that is if you do not abide in my word, you are not truly my disciples. We don't want any parameters for our Christianity. We want the freedom, ironically, to be able to decide these things for ourselves. We want the freedom to be able to decide for ourselves whether or not we are Christians, whether or not we are true disciples. We don't need some preacher to tell us if we are or are not saved. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. And while many today might object to that statement, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They they may object to these words... These people don't. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. They don't object to that. They don't object to this statement either, and you will know the truth. It was not offensive to them that Jesus claimed that his word was truth. It was, it was true truth. It was highest truth. They don't object to this. We all know that this claim is offensive today. It's offensive to say that God's word speaks to right and wrong. That God's word defines certain cultural norms like marriage. That God's word defines gender roles, leadership, 
that it defines godliness, that it defines the family. The list goes on and on. It's offensive to say that God's word is truth. So many people like to pull kind of nice, quaint little sayings like this out of context and use them as sound bites. But in reality, most of the people around us object to the Bible's clear commands and mandates. But freedom? We sure like freedom, especially my own personal freedom. But Jesus tells us here that, that it's actually a phony freedom. It's actually a phony freedom. Look at their objection, verse 33. They answered him, we're the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? This is more than just a simple objection. It's more than just a simple question. They're actually accusing him. How is it that you can say that? Now, their objection there has two parts, and they're connected. Their pride and their inner feelings. Their pride and their inner feelings. So let me explain. First, their pride. We are the offspring or the seed or the sons of Abraham. And this heritage for them was a great source of pride. This was a great source of pride for the Jewish people, which is not necessarily bad. Don't hear me say that that's a bad thing. In fact, the Apostle Paul really did take great pride in his Jewish heritage. He wrote in Philippians chapter 3, he wrote these words. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, that is, in his heritage, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But that's not all that Paul says, because he goes on to write this. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's talking about his heritage. He's talking about his education. He's talking about being a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. I counted, indeed, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, Paul didn't look with pride as a descendant of Abraham as being the source of his salvation. I think he was a proud enjoyed being an Israelite, enjoyed being of the tribe of Benjamin. But he didn't look at all of that as the source of his salvation. But these Jews did. The Jewish leadership here that Jesus is arguing with, they did view that as the source of their salvation. They said, we are the offspring of Abraham. We are spiritually superior to all others. They looked at their, at their ethnic and their religious heritage as the root of the confidence of their salvation. And, and on the face of it, there seems to be biblical support for that. Think of Psalm 105, for example. Listen to Psalm 105, verse 4 through 11. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments He uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his, 
uh, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your inherit, a portion for an inheritance. Or consider Isaiah chapter 41, just verses 8, 9, and 10. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called you from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have, not, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The offspring of Abraham looked to this heritage as their righteousness. They, they looked at those things and they believed themselves to be righteous, but salvation is not a matter of heritage. Salvation is not a matter of ethnicity. Salvation is not a matter, it's not passed down from one generation to another. We are not saved by being born of the right blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And being born of God comes from being given by God himself the right to become children of God. Why? Because of belief in Jesus Christ. So I just said this in reverse order, but that's John 1, verses 12 and 13. Let me read it in the right order. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And even for the Jews, even for the Jewish leadership here, the answer is the same. Salvation does not come through heritage, but by believing in the name of Jesus Christ. That's how Abraham was saved. Genesis chapter 15 tells us he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. They believed that because they traced their heritage back to Abraham, then they were saved. But Abraham was saved in the same way that we are, by grace through faith. He believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Their pride of their Jewishness caused them to reject the freedom that Christ was offering them. But their objection was also based on their inner feelings. Not just their pride, but also their inner feelings. We, they say, have never been enslaved to anyone. Now, obviously, this is connected to their heritage. And if we take this statement at face value, it's absurd and it's even ridiculous. We've never been enslaved to anyone, they say. It's hard to come up with a major ancient world power that had not put the Jewish people into slavery. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Syria, these are all openly mentioned all throughout the Old Testament as enslaving the people of Israel. 
And everyone knows, even at this point in the New Testament, everybody knows about the Greeks, Alexander the Great. Everybody knows about the Roman Empire. So what are they talking about? We have never been enslaved to anyone. Well, the reason I wanted to read this whole section together is to remind, them of the, remind us of the context of this argument. So let me just pick out three verses, okay? Verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What is Jesus talking about? Well, pick it up in verse 24. I told you, you would die in your sin unless you believe that I am he. You will die in your sin. And verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus has been preaching to them about salvation. And sometimes when talking with the Pharisees, the Jewish leadership, sometimes they will totally switch the subject on him. But they're not doing that here. They aren't switching the conversation from the spiritual salvation uh, to, to the physical. So they're talking about spiritual freedom. They're talking about their spiritual privilege, which is exactly what Jesus is talking about. They know what he's saying. But as I said, they object to this, to his statement when he said, the truth shall set you free. And their objection is based on their inner feelings. They felt free. They felt like they were free. The fact was they were slaves of Rome and everybody knew it. But they didn't feel like they were because even, even Rome gave them certain religious liberties. But even more importantly, they were slaves actually to the law which served to prove that they were, in reality, slaves to their own sinful desires. They were slaves to their own sinful desires. And I don't think there's any clearer proof that they were slaves needing freedom than the fact that they were continuing over and over and over again to reject the Son of God, who had said to them back in chapter 3, verse 19, in fact, he even said to Nicodemus, one of the leaders of the Pharisees, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. They're dead in their sins. They're slaves in their own sin. You can see this, this accusatory, this prideful attitude behind their question there at the end. How is it that you say you will become free? We are already free. We're Jewish. We are already free. We are the sons of Abraham. Well, let's talk about Jesus' response there in verse 34, where he says essentially that they are sin's slaves. Verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Some versions might just simply say everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Some might say everyone who continues in sin is a slave to sin. The fact is, those are all true. Whoever sins is a slave to sin. Jesus replies here that, to their objection with one of the most important statements, really, in all of the gospel according to John. One that answers their, their self-perceived notion, their self-perceived status as free men. We know that this is an important statement because he starts with this truly, truly, or, of course, the King James that I grew up with. Verily, verily, I say to you, uh, 
or unto thee. Truly, truly, it's a figure of speech. It's meant to emphasize what he's about to say, which is this. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. This is the, this is the great kind of fundamental problem of mankind. He is in bondage to sin. Today, we stand and fight for those enslaved for what we call maybe human trafficking, which is a horrendous sin. It is evil. We also rightly speak up and act for other types of slavery as well. There are still real issues of slavery in our world. John Newton famously urged William Wilberforce to fight against the evils of the, of the slave trade by staying in Parliament and, and working to change laws. This was an issue, Newton, the slave trade was an issue that, that John Newton knew all too well. And this was a God-honoring work. In fact, Micah 6.8 describes both of these men. Has, uh, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before your God? This is a good fight, but there is a deeper, more tragic, more destructive slavery. And it is a slavery that exerts control, not simply over our bodies, not simply over our actions, not simply over where we want to be, live, stay, where we want to travel. It's not limited to being an emotional slavery or even being a, a slave to a system of injustice, like an unjust government or some kind of financial slavery. It's being a slave to sin. This is the deeper, more tragic, more destructive slavery. This is a slavery that extends not just over our physical but over our hearts, over our wills, over our affections, and it affects every single person. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin, Jesus says. This statement is the, is the identity and the practice of all humans. And, and no one gets to say, well, that doesn't describe me because I don't make a practice of sinning just comes naturally. This is one of the themes that John will elaborate on later. In his first letter in 1 John 1, verse 8 says this, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And by implication, that means that we are not free. Paul is just as blunt about it, you know Romans 3.23 probably, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. There's no escaping it. All sinned. Therefore, according to Jesus, all are slaves to sin. You're not slaves to Caesar. You're not slaves to Pharaoh or... Kim, Kim Jong-un or any other temporary earthly ruler. You're enslaved to your own self-centered sinfulness. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, he calls this an evil and enslaving devotion to created things at the expense of worship of the Creator. An evil and enslaving devotion to created things at the expense of of worship of the Creator. 
That's why back in John chapter 6, when the crowd wanted to take him by force and make him king, Jesus wouldn't let himself be reduced to the level of merely a, a political messiah. He came to set the captives free. He says this, Isaiah predicts that the Messiah would set the captives free, but not just political prisoners, not merely the racial slaves, not human trafficking victims. He came to set hearts free from sin. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus Christ came to set your captive heart free from the sin that so easily entangles. And at this point right here, the end of verse 34, we are so grateful that Jesus kept talking. We are so grateful that he didn't stop at the end of verse 34 when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But he kept talking. Instead, instead of stopping there, he goes on to give us some hope, true hope. A true hope in the true son. Look at verse 35. This is the true son. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Now follow the the progression of thinking here. Follow the line of this argument between Jesus and the Jews. So he first mentions freedom when he says the truth will set you free. The Jews say they've never been enslaved to anyone, spiritually speaking. And now here in verses 34 and 35, Jesus brings up this status of being slaves. So a lack of freedom necessarily means enslavement. And enslavement, by definition, means that you are slaves. You could follow that, right? See, the Jews think of themselves as the offspring or the sons of Abraham. But in reality, Jesus tells them, they're slaves to sin. And Abraham's, as his descendants, they felt spiritual confidence there. They felt even even a spiritual superiority as his descendants. And to be called a slave was a great insult to them. Because unlike, say, American slavery, slaves during the New Testament era were very often slaves because they had maybe acquired a great debt or they were in extreme poverty for some reason. And the only way out was to sell themselves into slavery, or to sell their children into slavery until they could work off that debt. But these Jews, they're in the temple. They're standing there in the temple. They're taking the time to debate with this itinerant preacher. To call them slaves was to insult them. But even even slaves had the hope of paying off their debt and being released someday. When they were released, they would be sent away. They they couldn't live in the house anymore. See, in a really subtle way there in verse 35, Jesus is referring to these sons of Abraham, these children of Jacob, his chosen ones, the ones to whom belong the law and the prophets, the children of the covenant. He's saying that really... You guys are just like Hagar and Ishmael. 
Do you remember the story of Hagar and Ishmael? Listen to Genesis 21, just verse 10. So Sarah said to Abraham, cast this slave woman with her son, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. The son, the heir according to the promise, God's covenant, he gets to stay in the father's house forever. A son is always a son. A slave can be sold or sent away. Jesus is telling them, you are slaves. I'm the son. I'm the true son. Look at what he had said again in verse 28. When you have lifted up the son of man, this is one of the only times in John's gospel he uses the phrase son of man. Typically, he calls himself the son of God. Here, he uses the phrase son of man. It's a reference to Daniel, and they would know exactly what he was saying. When you have lifted up the son of man, then you'll know that I am he, and that I, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus is telling them that you're not the sons of Abraham because you don't believe as Abraham believed. You have not put your faith in the Father as Abraham has put his faith in the Father and it was credited to him as righteousness. I am the Son and the only way to the Father is through me. The only true way to true freedom is through Jesus Christ. This is the true freedom that he talks about here in verse 36. So if the Son sets you free you will be free indeed. Now, I don't know how this is translated in your Bibles there, verse 36, but in the ESV that I use, English Standard Version, it's appropriate that, that it is a lowercase s son in verse 35 and a capital S son in verse 36 because he's moved from the hypothetical to the reality. Jesus not only enjoys certain kind of inalienable rights as the Son of God, but he also exercises the full authority from the Father. So John chapter 3, verse 35, he had said this, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand, including the authority to set captives free. So here's what this looks like when he sets captives free. I already read John, 1 John 1, 8. Let me read it with verse 9, too. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Remember, the truth is what sets us free. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what true freedom is. It's not a heritage of being born into the right family. True freedom is, is not the freedom to do whatever we want, to go wherever we want, to not be bound with back shackles and, and chains. I'm not trying to minimize the evil of slavery. But true freedom is a freedom to serve who we were, who we were created to serve. True freedom is the freedom to live in the Father's house. 
True freedom comes only by being set free from our slavery to sin by the Son Himself who has been given the authority from the Father. If you are truly His disciples, and Romans chapter 8 verses 1 and 2, and two is, is true of you. If you're truly His disciples, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We're no longer slaves to our sin. We've been set free. And know this, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, for freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm, therefore. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free from your slavery to sin. The sin no longer has dominion over you. You know, you still do it sometimes. It no longer has dominion over you. You have been set free in Christ. And so there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Lord, Galatians 5.1 is our prayer today. That we would stand firm. That Christ has set us free for genuine and true freedom. Freedom from the penalty of sin. Freedom from condemnation. Freedom from being bound to our sin. We are no longer identified by our sin. We are now identified as saints, true disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, who have been given a, a new heart, a new nature. We have been crucified with Christ. Lord, therefore, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We have been made completely new. And so, Lord, I pray that we would stand firm, that we would be known as a people who stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery, that we would encourage one another to stand firm, that we would stand firm because of what you have done. We pray these things in Jesus' name.